You can have a seat, and if you walked in and had you got your communion cup, go ahead and grab it. If not, uh, raise your hand, and we'll make sure we bring one to you this morning. Last week, we were in John chapter 19, and Jesus on the cross said the words, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai, which means it is done, it is complete, it's been paid for. I'm so grateful that we have a Jesus who did for us what we can never do for ourselves. Overcoming sin, overcoming death, overcoming our past. Yeah, we can clap for that. Amen to that. Thank you. Jesus obviously doesn't want us to forget it. And if you're like me, it's easy to forget. But he says, you know, I want you to have a symbol of what I did for you just to reflect upon the cross. And so grab your communion. This is the symbol of what Jesus did for us. Take the little part, a little plastic off if you'd like and take the cracker. Jesus' body was broken in two so that you and I could be made whole again. So let's take this to represent Jesus' body and thank him for that. If you wanna push down on the tab and then be careful, and you pull it back. Jesus said from the cross, I am thirsty. And they gave him sour wine. But today we don't drink sour wine. We drink a representation of Jesus' blood because he was thirsty on our behalf and he gave us this so that we don't have to be thirsty ever again. Our soul satisfaction can be there forever because he quenched our thirst for us. Let's do this to remember Jesus today. Lord, we say thank you for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. May we never forget. In Jesus' name, amen. We just say thank you to our worship team and our technical arts teams today. They are just so amazing. I don't think people understand they're here on Thursday rehearsing, and then they are here starting at 7 in the morning, and they're all here all the way until the end of the third service. So just so grateful for them. My name's Eric. If I haven't gotten to meet you, uh, I'm one of the pastors at the chapel. Uh, usually uh, I get to be in Sandusky, uh, and Charles and I, we decided to swap campuses this weekend. So Charles is in Sandusky, and I'm in Norwalk. And uh, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. My two boys had a friend over, and you know how that goes. And yet I woke up so excited to be here. I haven't been here in almost six months, and I just could not wait to worship with you today. So I'm so honored to be here and be with you. A couple things that we have coming up at the chapel. First of all, love our student ministries. I started here when I was 17 years old, and I just love that we continue to help bring students one step closer to God and each other. And so if you're a middle school student, usually we meet at 10 a.m., but we did not have that service today because of Labor Day. We have a great middle school program and a great high school program led by Eric Gonzalez, who is an amazing man. And he wants to meet you. And so if you have questions about middle school or high school ministry, whether it's for you or your grandchild or your, ch uh, your children, he'll be out there after the service. He has some information for you and would love to meet you and tell you more about our student ministries. Next week at our high school ministry, we're kicking everything off, just like everything is during the school year. And we're having a great block party. David Bunce, a.k.a. Intellect, who just wraps awesome theology, will be there in Sandusky, all three campuses together. And so if you want more information, go and see Eric afterwards. When it comes to our community, we have a saying, we want to be the best church for the community, not in the community. And how do we do that? By meeting community needs when God asks us to do that. 
And so every fall, we want to try to warm the community. Those who can't buy certain things that need gloves and hats and uh, coats and those kinds of things, we want to come through with that. So this year, it's a little different. Usually we do new and used or gently used items. We realize that gently used is a relative term. Some people think it's barely used. Other people give us what they've had for 25 years just to clean out their closets. And yet, uh, when we give those things to our partners, they don't want those things. They need more new so that people that are coming feel dignified and say, hey, I have something new. So we're collecting coats, socks, and gloves starting next weekend. For the next few weekends, you can just put it uh, in the atrium when you walk in. So if the Lord leads you, we appreciate that. And finally, our men's ministry is kicking off with a bang. Pastor Jeff has the most energy I've ever met in my life. And he said, we're going to do something huge on a Saturday. So to start off the whole day, fourth grade and above, we're going to do uh, a flag football tournament. So if you're a younger uh, guy or you know a younger guy and you want to sign up a team, you can do that by texting the word football to that number on the screen. If you don't have a team, you can just register yourself or your son or your nephew, whoever that is, and we'll get them on a team. And then fourth grade and middle school will be playing each other, and then high school and above with adults. So men, if you want to live out your glory days again and put on some flags and pretend it's Friday night, again, you can do that. And so you can register your team or just as a person by texting the word football to that number on the screen, which is in your welcome program. And then that night... Uh, We're going to get together for a tailgate and then watch the Ohio State University battle Notre Dame. Hopefully they look better than they did yesterday. And uh, we want to make sure, guys, if you're coming, we know it. And so if you text the word game to that number on the screen, uh, we'll be able to count you in and know how much food to get. So two different opportunities. You can do both or one or the other. You just have to register for both if you want to do either. And it's in your welcome program as well. All right? Uh, I want to start by asking you a question. How many of you have had expectations of something to happen, but then those aren't fulfilled. And because of that, now you're left feeling skeptical or hesitant or doubtful about things in the future. That has happened to me constantly. Just as a Cleveland Browns fan, that is my whole life. You have these expectations, and then halfway through the season, you're miserable, you have doubts, you hate football, you're never going to watch it again. When I was a kid, it started by when my parents, who meant well, told me, Hey, you can do anything you want. Dream big. You can become anything you want. And my teachers told me that. Coaches told me that. And so when I was a kid, I decided that I wanted to become rich and famous. And I thought the easiest path for that with me is to be a Major League Baseball player. I loved baseball, and I thought that was my thing. Until I realized to be a Major League Baseball player, you have to be good at baseball. And when I became a high schooler, my coaches told me, you're going to be basically playing JV all the way through as a high school senior. And so I quit. (laughs) Never became rich. The only fame I have is, I guess, I was on the Cleveland uh, Cavaliers screen dancing. That's really the only fame that I have. But you're told from a young age, expect this, but then it doesn't happen. Then what do you do with that? Or as a parent, I remember when I started to do student ministries, parents would come to me and they would say, what do we do about our kid or our kids? They're acting this way or they're living this way. And I didn't have kids at the time and I thought I knew everything. And so I told them to do certain things and then when it didn't work, I kind of judged those parents. Like, you must be bad parents. And then I had kids. (laughs) God wanted me to learn the hard way, so he gave me four. 
11, 9, 7, and 5. And as it became apparent, I had these expectations that I was going to be the perfect parent to raise perfect kids. And now I have an 11-year-old who will come up to me and I'll tell him to do something and he'll just look me in the eyes and say, why? You know, i just like, because I said so, that's why. He's like, well, why did you say so? I'm like, boy, if I said that to my dad, it'd be the first and last time I did that. But he's just questioning everything and I keep telling my wife, two things are going to happen. Either all four of our kids are going to end up in jail or I'm going to end up in jail. I don't know what that is. But you have this expectation. And, and so I apologize to any parent that I ever gave parenting advice for because I'm trying to use that. It doesn't always work. And now I'm doubtful that my kids will ever make it out of the house. I don't know. But you have these expectations. Same thing with the Lord. You have this expectation, at least I did when I became a Christian, that now that I know the Lord, things are going to be a lot easier. That now that I have God in my life, he's going to help me accomplish everything that I want. And I realized quickly, though I have an incredible life with the Lord, he doesn't always agree with my plans. And I have these expectations, God, that you're going to do this and you're going to set my life up to be this. But over time, I've been disappointed. I become disillusioned with God. I get frustrated with him because it doesn't end up the way I want. Or I pray for a certain situation. And God doesn't feel like he hears my prayers. Or I want this other person to change, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and he or she doesn't change. Or maybe my wife prays for me, and she doesn't see me change, and she's disillusioned with God. We have these expectations of God, and oftentimes they don't come true, or at least the way that we want them to come true. And what do you do with that? I think in John chapter 20... When it comes to these disciples and Mary Magdalene and others who were following Jesus for his entire ministry. They expected him to be the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to come and rule and reign as this Jewish king who would allow them to be removed from oppression. And they would rule and reign the Romans and everybody else that were trying to bully the Jews. Jesus was the white uh, hope on a, on a white uh, horse coming in to save the day, and all of a sudden, Jesus is killed. And what do you do with that? You gave up your life, you gave up your career, you gave up your family to follow this guy, and now it looks like he's just another lunatic who claimed to be God, and yet is buried in a grave. That's where we're at in John chapter 20. Jesus was crucified and is buried. And everyone's like, we expect you to be this. But now we're left with this. What do we do with it? So, let's jump in. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That was John. She said... They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Mary thinks she's going to visit Jesus' tomb, and that Jesus is still in there, and that she's just going to pay respect because she misses him. She longs for him again. Her expectations weren't fulfilled, and she can't believe he's gone. And so she goes to the tomb, and she sees the stone has been rolled away. Now, you and I understand why, but for her... She doesn't think that Jesus rose from the grave. She is convinced that people have stolen Jesus' body. And she's so distraught about it that she goes and tells Peter and John. We read this in verse 3 through 4. Peter and the other disciple, John, started out for the tomb. They were both running. 
the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. The other disciple is John. John wrote the Gospel of John. And it's so interesting, the detail that John wants us to know. John and Peter find out that the tomb is empty, and so they start to run, and John tells us that he beat Peter to the tomb. Is that not a guy thing, this competition thing where here's Peter and John, they hear about Jesus' tomb, and they're running, they're probably hitting each other to see who can get there first, and John wants us 2,000 years later to know that he indeed beat Peter and he's faster than him, okay? That's just an off thing that I needed to point out to you because I thought it was hilarious, But they get there, they realize that the tomb is empty. And they look inside. And they're expecting Jesus' body to be stolen. And no, Jesus' body is not there. But he sees the clothes of Jesus. They see the clothes of Jesus folded up. And in that moment, they knew. They knew that Jesus didn't die and stay in the grave. They knew at that moment, all that Jesus told them just came True. His body wasn't stolen. He walked out of the tomb. We read in verse 9, For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. It's like they saw the clothes folded up and they thought, He is who he says he is. He told us that he would die and three days later he'd rise again. Finally, it actually happened. And they're so excited, they run back, and they're ready to tell the other disciples. But Mary, she still doesn't comprehend it. She still doesn't believe, and there she is, crying, because her Lord has been stolen. And these two angels appear to her, and they say to her, why are you so sad? And she says, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. She's about to leave and go back. When all of a sudden this gardener appears, or what she thought was a gardener, they start to interact. Then the gardener says one of the most beautiful things Mary has ever heard. Mary. Mary. It wasn't a gardener. It was Jesus. Mary, I'm alive. Mary, I know you're sad, but you don't have to be. Mary, I know you had expectations of me, and it didn't look like I fulfilled those expectations, but I did. I'm here. I'm alive. Her, Peter, and John, they run back to the disciples who are gathered in seclusion. Why are they secluded? Well, they thought Jesus, who suffered and was killed, would happen to them. They thought, well, they're going to do to us what they did to Jesus, so let's go and hide. We don't want to be embarrassed We don't want to go through the ridicule that they killed our Jesus and we don't want it to happen to us. And so we are going to hide and try to make a plan B because this guy who we expected to be the Messiah, we expected to be the Lord, he is dead. And then they go back. Say, I've seen the Lord. And in that room, Jesus appears to them. All of the disciples are there but one. And he says, look at my hands. This is who I am. They're pierced. And this is me because look at the spear that was thrust into my side. This is me. And you can probably think what happened in that moment. It was just pandemonium, celebration. They were hiding. They were scared. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. They felt their Messiah died and was never going to rise again. And there he is amongst them. This celebration. They would have been going crazy. Everybody was there except one. Thomas. 
We don't know what Thomas was doing, but he wasn't there when Jesus appeared to them. He didn't hear about Peter and John's testimony. He didn't hear what happened with Mary. didn't hear or see that Jesus was amongst them. He comes back and they say to him, look, we've seen the Lord. And he says, no way. You guys are playing a terrible practical joke on me. There is no way that you saw the Lord. He's dead. He's in the tomb. I saw him die. I saw him get buried. There is no way that he is still alive. And Thomas, who is so real and so authentic, he says it this way. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Okay, you saw him. Great. I haven't seen him. I don't believe it. I need to literally touch the guy and see him face to face before I would believe. And because of this, Thomas gets the nickname, what? Doubting Thomas. As if something's wrong with what he did. We call him Doubting Thomas because how could he doubt? How could he doubt? Because everybody else saw a risen person and he never has before. That's the only response is to doubt. Because how many of us have seen a risen person? person from the dead. No. And if someone told you, oh yeah, I saw that person, you'd be like, uh, no way. (laughs) I love that he doubts. I love that he's real. I love that he's authentic. He doesn't say, oh, you saw Jesus, great, now I believe, but then deep down, he doesn't really believe. No, he's like, I don't believe. I love that they include this into the story. They want this sanitized story of this Jesus so that people would believe. They wouldn't include this. They wouldn't include doubt. And so we shouldn't Call him Doubting Thomas as if he's wrong. We should call him Thomas, a man who has understandable doubts. Doesn't come across as good as Doubting Thomas, but it's something that should be said about him because he has doubts. I have doubts. You have doubts, and if you don't, you're a liar. (laughs) I mean, Jesus said we are to walk by faith, which means none of us have seen the guy in person. And because of that, even though we may believe with our entire heart, there are times when we waver back and forth. Because it's really hard sometimes to believe in Jesus, especially in this century, in this year, when so many people reject him for so many reasons. Whether it's like J.D. Greer says, some things in the Bible are hard to believe, Or there are scientific discoveries that seem to conflict with the Bible. The Bible's teaching on morality seems very old and countercultural. Or if God is so loving and in control, why is there so much hurt and chaos? If you haven't asked these questions, are you really, really devout in your faith? Because I know for me, I doubt. And I have a degree in the Bible. I know Greek. I know a little bit of Hebrew to make me dangerous. I've studied it. I've been under some of the best teachers that have taught it. And there are times where I'm like, God, I don't know how I can be a pastor right now when I'm doubting myself. As if there's something wrong with it. But what's so beautiful about the Bible, in addition to Thomas, we have story after story of people who doubt. And I love the Bible doesn't just take it out, it keeps it there. As if we are the same as them, because we are. You go through the Psalms and you're going to see the psalmist go from God is good to I hate God. 
God is loving, and why is he doing this to me? God, you rescued me from this situation. Where are you? Because you are silent right now. Back and forth, back and forth. One of my favorite stories is the dad who's face-to-face with Jesus, and he says, I believe you, but I don't. Help me. Help my unbelief. If you want to sanitize the Bible, take all of those details out. But if you want to just let it loose, if you want it just to speak for itself so that you and I can relate to it, so when we have doubts, we don't feel alone, read the scriptures because you have people like Thomas who doubted. And Thomas, he was such a good person. He was so devout in his faith. That's why it must have been so hard for him. It was Thomas who left his career to follow Jesus. It was Thomas when Jesus said, I'm going to suffer. He says, well, let's go to and suffer with Jesus. He was devout. He loved the Lord. But he could not get over that a dead man could rise from the grave. What I love about Thomas, though, the scriptures tell us that after that scene, he wrestled for eight days and nights with these doubts. Listen, we live in a microwave culture that if you have a doubt and you Google it and you can't find the answer in eight minutes, you and I are giving up on Jesus. Or we read one article. We're like, that's it. Thomas, no. He didn't doubt that way. He doubted in the right way. He doubted to Jesus. He doubted to the Lord. He doubted with others trying to find the answers to the questions. I love what the NLT study commentary says of Thomas. Thomas was a doubter, but his doubts had a purpose. He wanted to know the truth. Thomas did not idolize his doubts. He gladly believed when given reasons to do so. Doubting was only his way of responding, not his way of life. He doubted, but he doubted to the Lord. He wrestled for eight days and eight nights, probably agonizing. Everyone else is still throwing this party. Jesus is alive. We saw him, and he is alone in his struggles trying to figure out, is it real? Did I give up my life for the right person? Is he truly who he says he is, or is he just another dead guy who pretended to be God? What do I do? And then, Suddenly, I love, for Thomas, it probably felt like years, but suddenly in that moment, before Jesus was standing among them, peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in my wound, in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. What I love about this, he needed it in this way. He needed to be tactile, which is he needed to feel the wounds. And Jesus doesn't come along and say, why? Why do you need to feel my wounds? I stayed with you every single day for three years. I told you I would rise from the grave. How dare you doubt me? For Thomas, he needed to feel the wounds. And Jesus says, here I am, touch me. Now do you believe? He's so kind and so gracious. For eight Sleepless nights, he doubted, and Jesus met him. If you're wrestling with doubt, I don't know if it'll be eight years, eight days, eight months, eight minutes, but if you doubt to Jesus, he will show up. Oftentimes, it's not this way. I wish he would. It'd make it a lot easier. Like if Jesus just came down and was like, hey, guys, here I am. Man, we would be all just going crazy, but he doesn't do that. But he will show up to you, either in the word, either in worship, 
either with community believers through circumstances, maybe a dream. I don't know, but he will show up in your doubts if you're doubting to him, because it's not wrong to doubt if you're doubting the right way. Thomas, he sees Jesus, he feels him, he knows it's him, and so he responds in this most beautiful way. He says, my Lord and my God, you are who you say you are. I am yours. What I love about this phrase, it is so personal. The word Lord in the Greek is the word kurios, which means master. When he says you are the Lord, he's saying you are in control. I wave the white flag. I surrender. You know what you're doing. I just want to obey you and go where you're going. You can lead my life. This word theos, which means God in Greek, is the supreme being, the supreme being of all beings, the all-knowing, the all-loving, the all-creator God. He says, you are that and you are the leader of my life. And he doesn't say, you are a master, you are a God. He says, you are my God. You are my leader. You are my Lord. And he makes it so personal that now that he has realized he is who he says he is, he goes, now I'm going to make my life count and I'm going to go and be whoever you want me to be because you are creator of all things and you are mine and I am yours and now I want to follow you wherever you tell me to go, even if it's dangerous because guess what? Church scholars tell us that Thomas he was a revolutionary, and he went out to tell people about Jesus, and we think in India he was killed for his faith. He went from a guy who didn't know what he believed to a man, probably before he died, smiled, said, I get to be with my Savior, my Lord, my God forever. If you realize he is who he says he is, you must do something about it. It must become personal. He's not a leader as if there's multiple ones, including us that we follow. He's not just a God amongst the plethora of gods. He is either a God or he's the God. He's either a leader or they, the leader. And if he's both the leader and the God, he must become mine as well. What's so incredible is Jesus says to Thomas, look, here I am, feel me, touch me, you know I'm real, but I know. I know sometime in September of 2023, the chapel's going to be reading this verse, and I need to speak to them too. So John records this. You believe, Thomas, because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Blessed are those who gather in the Norwalk campus at 1130 who believe in me, but they don't see me. They are blessed. That word blessing means happy, overflowing happiness, soul satisfaction, happiness. Blessed are those who believe. They haven't touched me like you, Thomas, but they believe and they do something about it. And you may say, but Eric, I have a lot of doubts. I would say, me too, we're in the right space. But let me tell you a few answers to those doubts. I wish I could give you every answer right now. I can't. But let me just give you a few that have helped me. It's interesting. Jesus went out to appear to Mary Magdalene and the other women at the tomb. What's the big deal? Because women's testimony back in that culture would have been discredited. If you were to go in the court of law and you were a woman, you would be, said, you would be uh, ushered out. A woman's testimony did not matter. It was a male-dominated society. And of all the people that you want to appear to, Jesus, you should go appear to men because if they say it, maybe people believe. But what does he appear to? Women. 
Because when something is true, it doesn't matter. If it's true, let it loose and let people believe if they want. If you want to make up a story, don't put men in it. Put women. Sorry, let me reverse that. If you want to make up a story, sanitize it. Say it the way you want. But don't put women, unless it's true. He appeared to Peter in Jerusalem, appeared to two travelers on the road, appeared to disciples, appeared to Thomas, remember, he doubted, appeared to James, who was actually against him. He appeared to 500. Now, why is that important? If you want to make up a story, you and I, we can talk about it, we can get it out there. You and I can get on the same page. Let's say this, 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 and this if they're asked about Jesus. Let's make sure our story is in line so we can make that up. You can't do that with 500 plus people. And they said, go ask any one of these people, some who believe, some who didn't, is he alive, yes or no? Yes. If they're saying it, and they're saying it, and he's saying it, and she's saying it, they don't even know each other, but they have the same story, what do you do with that? What do you do when many were present and watched Jesus ascend into heaven, left the church here to do Jesus' work, and from that moment to where we're at today, billions of people have followed and believed in him. They didn't see him, but they believe in him now. What do you do with people who were scared and would not come out of hiding that most, if not all, died for their belief? What do you do with that? What do you do with a kid like me who wanted nothing to do with God? I was not a religious freak. I didn't go to church when I was growing up, and now I'm a pastor, not a major league baseball player. What do you do with that? And I'm not pointing to myself to give myself glory because I'm the most disqualified pastor probably out there. I don't deserve that. But thankfully, Jesus came to me and says, do you really want life? Do you really want your life to matter? Then follow me. And somehow he gave me the occupation of pastor. It doesn't mean I'm better than you. You and I in our occupations get to be Jesus to other people. But it's crazy when you see that he's real. You don't have to touch him. But it's through the church he should be so real through our actions, both collectively and individually, that people don't have to touch him because they see him and experience him through you and me. Thomas didn't just say, you are a Lord, you are a God. You're my Lord, and you're my God. Is he yours? And if so, do people know? If so, if people had such critical doubts about God, and they can't have it answered by your life. What are we doing wrong? At the end of John chapter 20, after this situation with Thomas, John, he ends with the purpose of the gospel. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miracle signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so you may continue to believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John says, my, chap, my book's 21 chapters. It's really good. You should read it. But I could have written 2,100 chapters. The miracles that I saw this dude perform was crazy. And it could fill up book after book after book. But I'm going to give you 21 here. 21 chapters. So much that they couldn't even record it all. And he said, but look. It's written so that you believe. And when you believe, it says, you will have life. How do you have that life? By the power of his name. You don't have to do it on your own. You're allowed to doubt. You won't do it all right. I won't either. But if he's real, and he's at work in us, by the power of his name, 
We will be changed from the inside out, and people who have really good questions about God will have them answered through the way that you live your life out loud. If he is your God, and he is your Lord, let's live it out and act like it in our everyday lives. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so grateful for this story that you give us permission to doubt. I look around, I see people that probably have so many doubts because of what they've gone through. But Lord, Thomas had a vision of you that changed everything. And because of that, he had to go tell other people about him, hoping that through his own life, people would come to faith through you. God, meet us where we're at. You will not condemn us. You will not chastise us. You will meet us and change us for the purpose of others knowing you. Do that in our lives. Be my Lord and my God. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Great Sunday.